Hello, I'm Adnan Sawa, and this is Taking Apart Terror, and this is Some Recruitment Drive. So the foreign policy of America has to change, and we will fight you and destroy you if we have to. Stop killing our innocent men, women, and children overseas. What would you do if I came to your house, blew it up, shot your son, raped your daughter, and slain your parents in front of your face? Would you fight back? That is Jesse Morton, also known as Yunus Abdullah Mohammed, yelling at crowds in Times Square, New York in 2010. He was basically a recruitment agent, except the business he was scouting for was terrorism. We're going to be hearing more from Jesse later because, well, if you want to know about terrorism, why not ask someone who has actually been a terrorist? So, while we all know what the business of terrorism produces, chaos, destruction and fear, have you ever wondered how a terrorist organisation is actually run? How is it structured? Who decides what to do? How do they communicate the plan? Do fighters get a salary? To help me answer some of these questions, I'm joined by three people who have spent a great deal of time studying exactly how terrorist organisations, and Islamist extremists in particular, do what they do. Firstly, two of our regular specialist panel members, Assistant Professor at Kansas State University, Dr. Nadia Awedat. Hello, Nadia. Hi, how are you? And Dr. Haroro Ingram, who is part of George Washington University in the US, but is currently in Brisbane. Good to see you. Thanks, Adan. I'm happy to be here. And then joining us for this edition of Taking Apart Terror is Dr. Craig Whiteside, Associate Professor of National Security Affairs at the US Naval War College in California and co-author with Haroro of The ISIS Reader. Hello, Craig. Hello, thank you. It's an honour to be here. Craig, what is the best way of describing how the organisation, how Daesh is actually put together? Your analogy of like a company structure is fairly apt. Uh, It helps us understand that the group, uh, as it's evolved over a pretty long period of time, has a very uh, robust structure, uh, a hierarchy, Uh, a division of labor amongst its military people, its security people, its media people, its uh, administrative people. And this organizational structure has changed and adapted to the conditions that they've operated in in Iraq early on, and then uh, later in Syria, and then even its expansion across the globe, although certainly those structures are very loose and very immature uh, in in nature. Nadia, does it have a boss of the company and then, you know, this multinational kind of uh, organization that Craig describes? You know, in fact, all terrorist groups have, uh, if you would, three layers. One layer, the top layer, is the ideologues. These are the people who actually provide the ideas. And often, maybe disturbingly so, They have PhDs in Sharia. They give the ideas how this is Islamically sound. Because after all, this is supposed to be an Islamic state. So they need the theological backing. They need the ideas that put everything else together. Underneath that, once you have the ideology down, you have operational leaders. He's the guy on the ground. He's the operator. He's not the ideologue. He's the one who's implementing the ideas. And below that is the foot soldiers. And you have finance people, you have media people, you have... uh, I remember reading a lot of advertising. You can 
participate in the jihad with your pen. You can participate in the jihad with your uh, IT skills. So there is a, a position for you in this structure, no matter what your talents are. So, Haroro, would you agree with that? There's, there's a boss, there are managers, and then there are the people on the ground, the fighters. It looks very different in different locations and at different times. Structurally and organizationally, this is a group that adapts. It is very, very flexible. But I think a really useful way to, I guess, summarize what is a really core trait uh, that Daesh has throughout its multi-decade history is this idea of centralized command but decentralized management and execution. Through certain periods of its history, it looked a lot like a state. But for the vast majority of its history, it has been essentially an insurgency um, on the run. And yet, through all that extraordinary change and everything in between, those core traits largely remains the same. And it's in that centralized command, really, that core, that you get the dynamics that Nadia is talking about. The thing we are going to talk about in more detail later in this series is radicalization and de-radicalization. But just to touch on it here, what is the profile of a typical fighter and how are they recruited? I mean, what is Daesh looking for and who are the people joining the organization? Nadia? So, excellent question. And that very question confused a lot of researchers and experts because except for you know, buying into the ideology, they don't really have much in common. There are some that are educated. There are some that are not. There are some that are rich. There are some that are poor. There are some that have already jobs. There are some that are unemployed. So they don't actually have, you know, one profile. However, you could say that they have one thing in common, which is, again, buying into the ideology and buying into the dream of an Islamic state in which there are none of the challenges that Muslims have today, in which they have this prosperous, militarily strong and dominating state. And there's two kinds of recruitment. Some people just, you know, on the internet through their propaganda tools. However, according to uh, substantial research, a lot of uh, recruitment is in fact local. So they found that there's this one extremist in Tunisia and this one guy would recruit a lot of people. So it's very individual, it's very one-on-one, it's building uh, personal relationships. I kind of look at two different kind of streams, foreign to the area that they're actually operating in. So it could be foreign to Iraq and Syria or even foreign to West Africa province uh, or locals. So that's an easy divide. It is a divide that the group has worked very hard over time to kind of knit together because obviously those uh, groups might not get along they might not even be able to communicate in, in some ways. And so that's been a challenge for the group since its earliest days. Uh, but what they've found is that even though governing territory or controlling territory has been a high risk for most militant groups, because then they become targets, uh, what it allowed them to do, one, is to have a safe place for foreign people to come to. So like the caliphate controlling territory like say Mosul, there's a lot of evidence that they were able to recruit lots of unemployed young men who were in Mosul and were were quite underemployed prior to 2014 because it was a steady paycheck for a while. It probably did not turn out well for them, but they did not seem to be the ideologues that we tend to to see when we see the Islamic State. That was what territory did for this particular group. They they are getting paid then, all the soldiers in 
in Daesh? They did get paid. There were periods that they had to lower the pay because of the pressure from the counter ISIL, as it's called, coalition. The 79 nations was putting a lot of pressure specifically on economic resourcing like the oil fields and the oil refineries that they were using to make billions of dollars. Once that was put under pressure, they had to reduce the salaries. But I even saw bonuses during this period. So that was even like a longevity bonus for the company was something that we found in these documents. You know, a really great example is actually from ISIS's uh, birth because the U.S. disbanded the army, and all of a sudden, you have a lot of military men, unemployed, trained, and they were easy recruits. Recruitment. Getting the right people for the job. It's essential to any organization. Remember Jesse Morton? Drumming up support for Al-Qaeda in Times Square? In 2008, Jesse started an organization called Revolution Muslim, which was dedicated to spreading the message of Al-Qaeda. Their aim was to inspire as many people as possible to take up the cause. It was something he was very good at. Revolution Muslim was linked to more than half of the 27 terrorist cases prosecuted in the US during 2008 and 2009, including threatening to kill the makers of the adult cartoon South Park. In 2011, he was arrested and sentenced to 11 and a half years in jail for using the internet to solicit murder and encourage violent extremism. In prison, he did a 180. He's still a devout Muslim today, but now puts all that passion into preventing terrorism, not promoting it, using his insider knowledge. I got a chance to talk to him and ask him, look, when you were recruiting, who was responding? In the beginning, when we started Revolution Muslim, they told us that by establishing ourselves in New York City, it was going to be ineffective because they said that American Muslims were different from their European counterparts and that they were better assimilated, that they had attained higher levels of education and employment, and that that would make them less susceptible to the message. And we basically set out to prove that that was a falsity uh, and uh, did so, unfortunately, rather effectively. We had attorneys uh, that were, you know, making uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year in our ranks. We had donors from the Middle East that were very prominent and influential individuals. And some of the people that we recruited to our cause had master's degrees. Uh, one individual that perpetrated attacks with us was an engineer uh, studying at one of the best universities in the U.S. for engineering. So I did most of my radicalization and recruitment under a kunya or an Islamic adopted conversion name uh, that allowed me to basically feel like in the real world I could operate as a general citizen and still espouse the ideas of Al-Qaeda on the side. I worked with a team uh, and we developed teams of teams, if you will. We had our graphic design team. Uh, we had our administrators for our chat rooms. Uh, we had our research team. We had our writers. We had our social media arm. And I basically managed a lot of that and came up with the creative concepts so that it ran very efficiently like a private entity. So there you go. He's just said it ran like a private entity. So in this business, Haruru, I mean, who makes the decisions? Who decides the strategy? What kind of outfit are they running? This is an organization that 
has tended to be obsessed with bureaucracy, with paperwork, even when it's an insurgency on the run. And so we have a pretty good idea of how the organization tends to work during certain periods of time. And so in areas where the Islamic State controls territory or it wants to control territory, it's those practical drivers, those practical motivations that tend to inspire people to join and support the group. But outside of those areas, it tends to be more of those identity and ideological drivers. Now, why is that important? Because how you motivate Uh, your fighters, how you motivate your supporters is going to impact the way that you try to manage them as well. Because as an organization, it has tended to show a lot of faith in its field commanders, in its middle managers to make management and execution uh, decisions. And so what becomes important is that that core group that Nadia referred to, that mix of experts, they kind of uh, provide these broad guidance Um, sometimes through doctrine as well, and that gets disseminated out. And so this becomes really important, again, for an organization that wants to adapt, um, that needs to adapt, that needs to deal with um, suffering and decline and death. Uh, These fundamental dynamics help us to understand uh, how the organization seeks to move forward and survive as a management and a leadership and as a doctrine system, but also how it tries to keep its fighters and supporters satisfied. So basically, there is a general idea sent out by the big bosses, and then it's up to the managers how they achieve that goal. Is that is that right, Nadia? Absolutely. And the ideologues are, are really important because, again, this is an ideology-driven movement. And also the hierarchy. There is... and. They really praise, above all, uh, blind obedience. I mean, forget about individualism and human rights and individual sovereignty. All these modern concepts are entirely antagonistic with all these groups. And they would not hesitate to execute anybody who questions. They want to imitate and resurrect the first Islamic state. And one of the things praised is obedience to the leaders. So, Craig, I was just going to ask, do we know operationally, like, how do these big bosses give these managers their instructions? These people are largely isolated. They make very big decisions. They do not run the day-to-day operations. They have a large group of maybe a dozen or so uh, in the delegated committee that actually run day-to-day operations. Literally, they're the senior lieutenants of the caliph. That is a very uh, high-risk position, and many of them uh, have been killed in the counter-ISIL campaign. Uh, They tend to divide up their operational areas into sectors or provinces. And then within each of those provinces are sectors and then local communities. Each of those have emirs or commanders that then kind of report up in the hierarchy Nadia described. What about the more specialist activities? Do they have departments devoted to particular things like marketing or finance? The media is actually uh, micromanaged at the very top. I'd say money is probably done the same way for obvious reasons, corruption, anti-corruption. Much of the military activities are decentralized because they're very simple to understand. But if you're going to assassinate a very important political figure, like say a rival Islamist in, in another group or a local political leader, that is almost always vetted at the very top of either the delegated committee or the actual caliph. 
And when companies actually devise a strategy, they're also usually thinking about the kind of tactics they need to achieve their strategic goals. Haruro, what kind of thinking goes on there? A really important part of the Islamic State's strategy is a great faith in their ability to not just exploit chaos, but to create it through decisive and timed actions synchronized with propaganda messaging. That is why when we think about this group and when we see the news and we hear about the latest attack, we see the latest propaganda um, a, a release, we take a deep breath and we say, okay, let's be sober and let's think about this from through a strategic lens. Why is the group saying that? Why is the group doing that? Because they want a knee-jerk response. And the more that a weak organization can coax its much stronger adversaries, and we are much, much, much stronger by any material, tangible measure, the more that I can coax you into doing what I want you to do, reacting how I want you to react, including with silly rhetoric, um, the better it is for me, um, because I then get you into positions that I want you. This is jujitsu. Wow, jujitsu. I mean, look, this isn't a subject to be taken lightly, but the idea of terrorism following the rules of this martial art is a, is a really effective way of understanding how they actually do what they do. Let's go back to the uh, management for a bit. Um, Nadia, what happens if a Daesh operative is, like, underperforming? Violence is one of the most persuasive tools uh, humanity has always uh, found, right? You find them in every authoritarian structure. So when I was doing... Um, research on ISIS, I was astounded at how many, in fact, senior people were executed. We're not talking foot soldiers, we're talking emirs even. So violence makes everybody else get in line, makes it much harder for people to defy. A lot of the, especially foreign recruits, a lot of people who came from England, from Belgium, you know, they thought they were getting into this uh, very idealized, a version of Islam when they show up and it's very brutal and it's very and they're used to their their individual human rights etc. They can't just go back. A lot of them were shot dead. So and others will get intimidated. So violence was very very persuasive tool that ISIS used with liberty. It's it's sounding less like a company and more like a a violent gang uh, to me right now. There is research making exactly that analogy you just made. Yeah. Um, Haroro, um, what about the recruitment right now? Are they finding it pretty difficult? I've heard that, uh, you know, they, they're not getting that many recruits. Yeah, well, this is a difficult time for Daesh. You know, they've, they've been routed from their territories. They've had their leaders killed. You know, resources have been destroyed. But this is a resilient organization. Um, it's a resilient movement. And so what you see is the strategies that it uses to recruit uh, change during times of success during times of strength it'll use um, more of those rational choice kind of appeals um, to bring on recruits uh, join us because we're strong join us because we'll pay you join us because we'll give you a position we'll give you a contract you'll be able to move through our organization that's when they're looking a lot more like a company or even a state but during those times of decline that's when it looks a lot like a gang and the kind of motivations the kind of recruitment tools that are used then wow, you can't underestimate the power of uh, violence and coercion. Um, remember, these are also desperate populations where the Islamic State is operating. And so 
Uh, it actually doesn't take that much coercion. It doesn't take that much financial incentive to say to desperate people in a desperate situation, um, there are other options. This is an organization that understands perhaps um, better than those who counter it, that it doesn't need to be perfect. It just needs to outcompete the opposition that it is up against. So uh, I want to stress what uh, Hera said about resilience because we really cannot at all anytime soon, uh, write the death certificate of violent extremism. Uh, because at some level, the ideas have not really been challenged. I mean, you know, we say in Muslim communities, you say, oh, it's not real Islam, and that's the end of it, let's not talk about it. Whereas they actually elaborate and spend phenomenal uh, effort into producing state-of-the-art propaganda, so there's an, a huge imbalance. There is not real challenge of, of these ideas. State-of-the-art propaganda. We know someone who knows about that. When Jesse Morton was getting the Al-Qaeda message across in 2008, that is exactly what he was creating. Back then, the world was, you know, really naive about how social media can be manipulated. You have to remember this is before Cambridge Analytica, before Bell Pottinger, before Russian interference in US elections. Jesse and his teams were way ahead of the game. Essentially, it was recognizing that we were living in an era where narratives were much more important than weapons. Using social media also allows you to trap people in echo chambers where all they will reference for their news and consider a legitimate news source is your entity. But that requires you to produce regular content. And that was something we could do that Al-Qaeda Corps could not. And what we were able to do was to have outputs that made us look like an actual media organization we were able to take dry diatribes from Al-Qaeda ideologues and we were able to translate those ideas into a way where Western youth could understand them. And we were very cautious not to explicitly mobilize people to attack, but by spreading the justification for the killing and the targeting of civilians and doing so in a creative way uh, to attack people's emotions and not their rational uh, mindsets. Immediately, we were able to craft an ecosystem that had 24-7 radio station with interactive lectures conducted on a program called Pal Talk that would link to the ecosystem of social media activity. We used Google Video, Blip TV, Scribd, YouTube, MySpace, Facebook, Twitter. When I was indicted, I think they listed about 70 different platforms that we had disseminated information across. And we sort of made Salafi Jihadism look like it was um, in Vanity Fair or Cosmopolitan, or as we would say, part of a Madison Avenue-style uh, uh, marketing campaign. And it allowed us to point out that small collectives of individuals could actually change the world if they took up Al-Qaeda's cause, and that every Muslim across the world had a binding obligation if they wanted to be on the proper interpretation of the religion to support what we were calling to we were able to convey the same faulty um, theological and psychological principles that allowed our own selves to be radicalized to a degree of frenzy um, and were able to utilize them and convey them to others and then dance and taste of the enchantment that's associated with bringing somebody into a movement that you believe is the only true representation of an objective truth. That's it right there, the key idea. It's the focus Jesse needed to capture the minds of his targets. But 
Haroro, how does this idea get translated into action? The ideologues matter, have no doubt about it. But this is an organization that has had some absolutely brilliant technocrats and strategists. Now, I don't want to give them too much credit. They are far more uh, strategic plagiarists than geniuses. But the Islamic State has produced its own Sun Tzu's and Guevara's, uh, how to organize for a perpetual war. It's a really hard thing to do as a bureaucrat. It's a really hard thing to do as a, as a military commander. But within its organization, there has been this culture of surprisingly critical strategic thinking. This is an organization, it might surprise your listeners, that has produced essentially lessons learned documents that in the aftermath of failures, it has produced documents designed to uh, learn the lessons from, from its failures in order to lay the foundations for trying to rise again. If I, as a foot soldier, can look at the organisation and say, OK, we've survived this before, and I know that my commanders have a game plan, not to mention that there is an ideology that helps to drive and inspire me as well, all of these parts become really, really important. So uh, I want to stress the fluidity of the terrorist organizations because once you have hardened fighters that are trained, they can easily move. They can easily go from one country. I mean, we've seen the journey of Osama bin Laden from Afghanistan to Sudan to Afghanistan again to Pakistan. Also, my colleague mentioned a really important point which is desperate population. And that is a key word because they thrive on chaos. Where are they thriving? Wherever there is instability, wherever there's desperate populations, again, they, they're easily convinced with whether it's small resources or simply violence. So, so they thrive on failed states. So we've been using this metaphor of Daesh being run like a company. And now it sounds like it's a multinational company looking for markets worldwide where it thinks it can expand. Is that what they're doing? Filling gaps? Craig? One of the strategic discussions that they had internally in 2009-10 was what happens when the United States leaves Iraq. They're very keen to take advantage of what they consider to be a vacuum, um, chaos, the lack of governance and security in these areas that they perceived would happen when the United States left, and then took advantage of it, as we saw in the roll-up to the to the caliphate, but you could also include Libya. It's the lack of, of stability post-intervention in Libya. And then where, what happens, you see the Islamic State literally sending some of its top leaders to Libya to try to kind of jumpstart their franchise there. They were not successful, but nonetheless, it was, it was quite a close call. And uh, obviously Syria is the key example where I think it was weeks after the first uprising against Assad and the Islamic State, which was not doing super well in Iraq in 2011, was sending its advanced parties into Syria. So that's something to look for when we see war between two states. They can take advantage of those kind of events to try to, to fill that gap. There is another dimension to this that is very important. So far, we've discussed the top-down dynamic. We've discussed the dynamic that comes from the Islamic State reaching out as part of a, a global agenda. But 
There is also a bottom-up dynamic where local groups in different parts of the world are reaching out to the Islamic State and are seeking affiliation. They're seeking that recognition. They don't just get a propaganda benefit from it. They also get a strategic and an ideological benefit from it. And what does the Islamic State benefit from this? Well, they can then say that, oh, look, we are spreading to this part of the world and that part of the world and we're over here and look at, look at how similar the operations are because they understand, they understand our strategy. Finally, can we just go around and I'll take it one by one, if you could all just give me uh, like a brief assessment of where Daesh is right now and what kind of things we should be looking for. Craig, can I start with you? This is a group that, that does make strategic errors of large magnitudes and even if they are resilience, that resilience is being tested right now. What they're really hoping, I think, is for some strategic opportunity to happen that we've just kind of talked about. In their core areas, they see a possibility of coming back. And then there are lots of opportunities in Africa and other places to, to continue to build the brand. And Nadia, how do you see the uh, organization right now? Because we have allowed their propaganda to go largely undisputed and unchallenged, any local actors who want to stir up trouble and want to punch way above their weight can just team up with ISIS and use the name to create a lot of chaos. So we, we really need, as an international community, to have a, a very strong counter-narrative and very proactive and consistent and persistent effort. Haroro? We have to be very careful and nuanced about the way that we think about um, and understand what are actually very, very complex dynamics. And we don't go too far one way and say, oh, wow, the Islamic State is everywhere. What are we going to do? And we don't go the other way, which I see far too much in Africa as an example, and say, oh, no, no, the Islamic State's not here at all. Um, um, we're, we're being fooled. What I think's really important when we thinking about the Islamic State now is we also think about it from the other perspective, from those who are seeking to understand and counter it. And let's be clear, for all of Daesh's strengths, there are at least equal and opposite vulnerabilities and weaknesses, plus some, that we need to be far better at exploiting. So for me, that was an incredibly illuminating discussion just about how the business of terror is actually organised. And one thing seems really, really clear. This is an enemy we cannot underestimate. I'd like to thank Craig Whiteside, Nadia Awedat, Haroro Ingram and Jesse Morton for their insights into the workings of terror. In our next edition, we'll be making a demand. Show us the money. Where do terrorists get their money from and how can we stop them getting it? Search for Taking Apart Terror wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe so you never miss an episode. I'm Adnan Sawa. Until the next time, goodbye.